Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Uh, today, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. Um, and originally, the series was supposed to end in June. Uh, and, and I was honestly, as we were studying and going through it, I just realized, man, I want to go, I, I want to do a little more. And so if you are ready for me to be done with this series, I'm so sorry to tell you, we're actually going to hit pause when we finish with chapter eight here in a couple of weeks, we're going to hit the pause button and then we'll come back to chapter nine in the fall and we'll finish up nine through the rest of the, the book of Romans this fall, take another seven or eight weeks to do that. And so we're going to unpack this and work through it together because uh, it has been good for me, but I hope it's been good for you as well. I hope it's been helpful and enlightening for you um, as we walk through the book of Romans. So let me jump right in. Uh, the book of Romans was written. It was a letter written to the Roman church by the apostle Paul. And he was writing to a Roman church that was very divided. It was divided along ethnic lines between Jews and non-Jews or Jews and Gentiles. They were both believers in Jesus, but they were divided among ethnic lines and also among uh, preferences for worship style. The, the Jewish believers felt like they wanted to adhere to Jewish principles and customs that they were familiar with and they knew. And the Gentile believers didn't want to have to do all the Jewish, observe all the Jewish rituals and laws in order to be Christians. And so there's this conflict in the church and there was problems. Uh, and so Paul was writing to try to help tamp down the issues in the church to bring unity to the body so that they could become who God wanted them to be. And so that's ultimately why Paul wrote this letter. Now the theme, as we've talked about for the, the book of Romans that you've heard multiple times, and you're gonna hear several more times, is that God judges sin but manifests mercy through Jesus. So God is righteous and holy, he has to judge sin, but he's also merciful and gracious, and he provides a way for us to experience the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we see over and over and over. So what we see, um, and, and really the, one of the reasons why we decided to divide this up like we are uh, between the, the spring, summer, and then fall is because in chapters one through eight, it's kind of divided up among this thought. So in chapters one through three, or maybe four even, you could say that you were discussing God's righteousness. And for the purposes of our conversations, we've defined righteousness as the, the idea that God always does what is right, and he is faithful to keep his promise. So he always does what is right, and he's faithful to keep his promise. And again, I wanna reiterate this. I, I wanna cement this in your memory, that, that we can remember this on our worst days, that God always does what is right. Even when I don't feel it, God always does what is right, that we can trust him. He's righteous, he's trustworthy. So chapters one through three, four, kind of talk about the righteousness of God and what the implications are for us as people who are, are not righteous, uh, that we are sinners, that we need a savior, and how Jesus was sent on our behalf to pay our ransom for us. We see in chapter four, he's talking about Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And, and so what we see is this transition where he talks about the righteousness of God, and then he starts talking about how the righteousness of God paves the way for us to have new life. And not just new life in heaven, but a, a new way of living, that our lives can look different because of what Jesus has done. And what he's trying to help them see. And remember, he's writing to Christians. So he's writing to Christians saying, you should look different than the world looks. You should act different than the world acts. 
There should be a marked difference between the way we love and the way the world loves, the way we are generous and the way the world is generous. There should be a, a drastic difference. And, and what God has done is he's made a way for us to live differently. And that's what he's doing. That's what he does. So last week, we, we finished up in, in part of chapter six with this idea that we are dead to sin and sin is dead to us. This idea that if you quit your job tomorrow morning and Tuesday, your boss called and said, hey, I need you to come back in. You would say, I'm not coming back to work. I quit my job. Essentially, what you'd say is I am dead to that job and that job is dead to me, right? I, am, I ain't coming back no more. That's the deal. Uh, I'm not doing any more work. I am done, right? And this is the idea we have with sin as well, that we make this proclamation. We just say, hey, sin is dead to me and I am dead to sin. It has no part in me and I have no part in it anymore. I'm done with that. So we'll pick it up today. In Romans chapter six, verse 12, and this is where we'll begin. Paul says this, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. He goes on to say, Indeed, I'm, I'm sorry, instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. He says, use your whole body for the good of God. See, we tend to, and especially in the Western culture, we tend to segment off parts of our life for God, where we go, okay, Sunday mornings are for God, um, Friday nights are for me, right? Like, I'm gonna serve God when I can on Sunday mornings, and that's it. Okay, or I'm gonna take 10 minutes in the morning, I'm gonna pray, but that's God's time, and the rest of the day is mine. So what we do is we segment our time off for God, and what Paul is saying is our whole life should bring glory to God. Everything we are, there's nothing that we reserve or we hold back for ourselves, that it is all God's. And this is where sometimes we talk about generosity, and you hear me say, I don't want you just to be generous to summit. Because generosity is not just about your finances. Generosity is our whole life. Generosity is, um, hey, how quickly will you forgive someone when they've wronged you? Because that's an act of generosity. I'm extending grace when maybe you don't deserve grace, right? I'm extending mercy when I don't feel like extending mercy. That's an act of generosity. Because there's lots of people who will give money willingly, but they're stingy when it comes to grace or forgiveness. They're, they'll hold on to their bitterness for years because they can't extend grace to someone else. So generosity is not just about our finances, it's about our whole life. And what Paul is saying is, hey, our whole life should bring glory to God, that it's not just about one thing we do, it's not just about church attendance, it's about our whole lives saying everything I am is dedicated to everything God is, that I am God's, my whole life is God's. My relationships, my kids, my work, my free time, my finances, my possessions, everything I have is God's. And everything I have is intended to bring him glory. He goes on to say this in verse 14, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So he's starting to, to delineate here between the law and grace. And we're gonna see this delineation several times throughout the, today where he talks about flesh and the spirit, uh, where he talks about the law of uh, the law of uh, being slaves to the law and being slaves to grace. Like we see this delineation. He's trying to help Jewish and Gentile believers understand uh, the need we have for, for God's mercy and God's grace. He goes on to say in verse 15, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you became a slave, of, you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? And you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. 
thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from the slavery of sin and you've become slaves to righteous living. He says you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. Now, in this context, we're talking about sin, obviously, and we're slaves to sin or we're slaves to the law. And what does that mean? What does that look like? But, but let me back up just a little bit. Um, I believe that this statement is true. You become a slave to whatever it is you obey. Whatever it is you answer to, you become a slave to. Um, it might not even be overtly sinful things that we become slaves to. Maybe it's something like affirmation. Like, I... I need affirmation. I need people to tell me how good I am or smart I am or pretty I am. And it doesn't ever hurt to tell me how pretty I am. I don't, I'm a sucker for that, okay? Be honest. But that's why social media is so damaging because we become slaves to affirmation. I'm gonna post this picture and if I don't get enough likes, like there's something wrong with me. We have a, an existential crisis because I don't get enough likes on a post that I post. I need the affirmation. I need people. And this is not a teenager issue either. I know grown adults who deal with the same thing. Why? Because we're slaves to affirmation. I need it. I need people to tell me I'm good. I need people to tell me I'm smart. I, I need it. So we obey that and we become slaves to it. Whatever we obey, we become slaves to. Whatever you are listening to, whatever you are obeying becomes your master. And Paul says this so acutely to us that we have to be careful what we do because our actions are evidence of our affections. What you do will tell me what you love. He goes on to say this in verse 19. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to ever... I'm, I'm sorry, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourself to be slaves to righteous living so that you can become holy. So let me explain, let me explain the context of slavery in the first century church. In the first century Roman Empire, slavery looked different than it did in the American South. When we think of slavery in the American context. It looked very different in the Roman culture. In the Roman culture, uh, slaves were typically indentured servants. So what happened is if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you would become a servant for someone. And it didn't mean you didn't have any rights. It just meant that basically you had to answer to them. You have a debt to them. And so because of your debt, uh, it forces you to answer to them. You have to do what they want you to do because you're their servant, or as Paul said, their slave, okay? Um, and, and this is what I want you to understand. Um, we were once in debt to sin, because sin causes us to uh, have a gap between our relationship and God. There's a debt that we could never pay. So we were indebted. And because of that debt, sin demanded, made demands on us, how we lived, what we would do, but Jesus paid the debt once and for all, okay? Jesus paid the debt for us. So now we no longer have a slave, uh, we're no longer slaves to sin because we're not indebted to sin anymore. Because of the work of Christ, we are now, and Paul says, he admits, this is a, 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 a crude illustration to say we're slaves to God or slaves to sin. But this is what he says, now we're slaves to God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We are indebted to him, but it's not like being slaves to sin. We, we are slaves to God and we have great joy in that because of what it means, what the implications are for us. 
Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. Um, have you ever, if you're a believer, have you ever seen people that were not trying to live for God and it just seemed like their lives were perfect? And I talk to new believers all the time that are like, Pastor Mel, man, I start serving God. It feels like my life fell apart. Like, well, what's going on? They start telling me their story. They're like, I'm, I'm coming to church. I started giving. I'm, here's all the things. And I still feel like my life is hard. And, and my friends who are pagans, their life is perfect and easy. And they don't have a care in the world. And that's the way it seems, doesn't it? But the truth is they're, they're slaves to sin. It doesn't mean we're better than they are. It just means that, that we've been set free from the slavery of sin. But it seems like they're carefree. It feels like their life is perfect. They don't have any issues, they don't have any problems. And, and the, the picture I would paint is a picture like this. It's the picture of a happy family. And imagine you're standing outside a house and you, you're looking in the window and you see this happy family eating a meal together. They're eating breakfast together and they're just laughing and having a perfect day. And then you look up and you see the whole top of their house is engulfed in flames. Their house is burning to the ground, but they're happily living their lives. And this is a picture of people who are uh, in, in blissful unawareness of the righteousness of God. Their, their house is burning to the ground, but they don't even realize it. They're just living their life. Everything seems fine and perfect and okay, and they don't have any problems, but yet things are falling around, down around them and they don't even know it. And, and this may be where you were at, because maybe you could say, Mel, before I came to faith in Jesus, my house was burning to the ground, and I didn't even realize it. I thought it was normal. I thought it was fine. But that's a, the picture of what life looks like before Christ for many people. And he says, and what was the result? What was the result of being a slave to sin? He said, you were now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. There's a lot more to cover here than what we have time. Um, he says, you're now ashamed of the way you used to live. And there are probably people in this room and watching online and sitting in Blairsville right now that you would identify with that. And you would say, man, Mel, if people knew what I used to be part of, what I used to do in my old life, like, ooh, man. I, I talked to a young lady recently and she told me, she just said, I, I love this church and I love what God's doing in my life. But if people knew about my past, I don't think people would love me here. And it was heartbreaking. And I said, you have no idea. You have no idea how people would care for you and love you in spite of what you've been through, in spite of what you've done, in spite of what's been done to you. You will be loved here, I promise. I just try to reassure her. But we all feel that way. If people knew, I gotta keep this secret. I've gotta keep this hidden. Because I wouldn't be loved if they knew the real me. And that's shame. Shame is about who we are. Shame latches onto us and it will not let go many times. Um, shame always drives us away from God and conviction from the Holy Spirit always draws us to God. That's the biggest difference. That's how you can identify if something is shame or it's conviction. Because conviction will bring us back to God. Shame will drive us from him. I'll give you an example. Um, back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter two. We get to the end of Genesis two. God has created everything. He's created man. He's created woman. And we get to the end of Genesis two and it says that the man and woman were naked and unashamed. 
Now, this is literal, but it's metaphorical as well. It was literal, and they were physically naked. They were unclothed with each other. But they were also emotionally, spiritually, relationally naked. There was nothing hidden between them. They knew each other 100%, and they loved each other 100%. There was no shame. And then when we get into chapter three, in chapter three, sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They do what God asked them and told them not to do. They did it anyway. And it says when they did, they, they, they ate of the fruit of the, tr- the, knowledge of, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to. And it says immediately their eyes were opened, they recognized their nakedness, and they were ashamed. So what's the difference? The difference is sin. See, God created a world where there was no shame. There was no shame in creation. Sin broke creation and ushered shame into the world. If you are living your life and you call yourself a believer and you're living your life with shame, stop. God never intended you to have that. He never intended you for to carry that. Shame is not of God, it's of the enemy. It is not a tool that God uses to, to bring you into right relationship. Now, some of us were raised in ways that maybe your parents would shame you into good behavior. That's not what our heavenly father does. He never shames you into good behavior. He will convict you because shame drives you from God. Conviction draws us to God. Ab and Eve, when they sinned, they realized their nakedness. They covered themselves and they went and hid. That's a good idea, right? Well, I'm gonna hide from God. They went and hid. Why? Because sin, it drove them from him. This is what shame does. Shame drives us away. When we do something that, that we regret, we, we do something we're ashamed of, we immediately will begin to withdraw from church, withdraw from godly relationship, from godly community. Why? Because shame does that in our lives. Shame is trying to break relationship instead of build relationship. And I believe, I believe that God wants to break the power of shame in this place. I, I believe that God did not intend for you to walk in shame. And if you're dealing with shame today, I want you to know, By the time you walk out of here today, I believe you can be set free from that by the power of Jesus Christ. So please do not leave here the same way you walked in. Verse 22. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do these things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Um, When I was a young man, I didn't know a whole lot about the ways of the world and I got this job at a church. I was a youth pastor. And um, we didn't have a lot of money in our bank account. I hadn't started work yet and I called the pastor. I was like, hey pastor, hey tell me about how like paychecks work. Like, because I need one. So what should I expect? And he said, well, and I hadn't started work yet. I was like, maybe, maybe I get paid before I work. Maybe that's how this works. And he said, well, here's how it works. You'll start on this date, and then on this date, you'll get a paycheck because you get paid for what you've done. I was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that. I, I knew, of course I knew that. I just wanted to make sure you and I were on the same page that we both understood. So yeah, yep, you work and then you get paid. Gotcha, I got it, no problem. I was like, I'm an idiot, I'm a fool, right? Like, I don't know. But it makes sense, right? You don't get paid before you do the work, you get paid after you do the work. 
and you get paid based on the work you did. The wages are what you earn for your work. And what Paul is saying here, he understands his language. He says, the wages of sin is death. He says, what you earn based on your, on your work in the flesh, on what you do in your own strength and your own power and your own ability, the, the wages you earn, what you deserve is death. That's what you earn when we try to work this out on our own, when we try to work in our own strength, when we try to save ourselves, when we try to win salvation through morality. This is what it leads to. This is what living according to the flesh will do. It leads to death. This is our payoff for that. And then he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And this is a trade-off. See, sin will give us what we deserve. God and his grace will give us what we do not deserve. The free gift of God. It is a free gift. How many of you like free gifts? Does anybody like free gifts? See, not enough of you raised your hand. If more of you had raised your hand, I had something for all of you, but I'm sorry. Some of you weren't playing along. I'm sure everybody in Blairsville raised their hands. I'm sure they all went straight up, but someday I'm gonna do that and you guys are gonna be like, and I'm gonna be like, reach under your seat. You get a car, you get a car. No, not today though. <laughs> We're in a recession if you haven't heard, so. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's far better than a car. It's far better than a free prize. It's eternal life through the work of Jesus Christ. So then he transitions to chapter seven, this next part of the letter, and he says, now, but now, dear brothers and sisters. So he says, this is how it's been. Now, he transitions. You who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law only applies while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she marries or when she remarries. Now this passage is less about that specific portion of the law. And what he's really trying to say is the law doesn't apply to dead people. And this is true in our world today. I've never seen a body exhumed and when they pull the body out of the grave, they slap the cuffs on it. We finally got you. We're taking you in, right? That's ridiculous. They wouldn't put a dead body on trial. Why? Because the law doesn't apply to a dead person. It's not how it works. And then Paul spells it out in verse four. He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And you're now united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, and, in, and then in some translations it says, when we were in the flesh, so I've been using that language a little bit to help you understand. So he says, when we were in the flesh, sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. So when we live according to the flesh, it ultimately leads to death because that's what it produces. The, the wages of sin is death. But now we have been released from the law, the law of the flesh, for we died to it and are no longer captives to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in a new way of living in the spirit. So again, he's, he's, he's painting this picture with parallel tracks. He's talking about the flesh and the spirit. He's talking about the law and the, the grace. And here he's doing the same thing. He's saying, hey, we're, we're not just 
obeying the letter of the law according to the Torah in the Old Testament. Like that's not what this is all about. But now there's, there's a new law, this law of grace that we have. It's, it's a way to encounter God and walk with God in the spirit. So he's saying there is the law and the spirit. There's the flesh and the spirit. And he says in verse seven, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin, is you, but sin used this power to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would have, uh, not have that power. So this is a passage that can be confusing. And we're gonna get into some passages that if you just read it at face value, it can be super confusing. But, but let me help you with this. So what Paul's talking about is he's asking the question, what do you focus on? What are you focusing on? And remember who Paul was. Paul was a Jewish man. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Jewish man who was raised in Jewish culture and he became a Pharisee, which is almost as high as you could ascend. In fact, Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he was at the top of his game. He knew the law. He loved the law because the law justified him. He loved to keep score. And as someone who loved the law, he could measure himself against others and be like, man, you fell short, but not me, I'm good. He understood the law well. And, and here he is in this moment talking about the law. And he's saying the law caused me problems. The law was an issue for me. Why is he saying that? And he's saying that because he was focusing on the wrong thing. See, his view was if I work to fulfill the law, then God will love me. So my focus is on the law. I'm gonna do this and then I'll be good. And this is what many Christians do. We go, okay, I just gotta do better. I gotta be more moral. I gotta, I gotta stop smoking and I gotta stop drinking and stop hanging out with those people and stop doing these things. And here's all these activities I'm gonna stop doing. Then God will love me. So what do we focus on? We focus on the law. And, and Paul says, we don't focus on the law because the law will lead us to death. We focus on the spirit. We focus on pursuing Jesus. When we focus on pursuing Jesus, all these other things will take care of themselves. If I'm pursuing Jesus, I'm not gonna be worried about am I fulfilling the law or not because I will fulfill the law. I'm not gonna do it perfectly. I'm still gonna mess up. But if I'm pursuing Jesus, I don't have to worry about every letter of the law. It's gonna work itself out. When I was in college, one of my professors said this. She said, a sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. And this is so true. Um, and this feels like an oversimplification, but it's amazing how true this is. That when we pursue the spirit of God rather than the letter of the law, how freeing it is in our lives. See, when we focus on sinning less, we ultimately sin more is what Paul says. But when we focus on pursuing God, we're set free from the power of the law in our lives because we're walking in authentic relationship with Jesus. I read a study this last week and it was talking about people, not just Christians, but anyone. Anyone who engaged with the Bible at least four times a week. So these were unbelievers, people who don't attend church, who read the Bible academically, who read the Bible as a spiritual guide, but maybe didn't even assign it value as the word of God. They just recognized there's wisdom there. It's a book of wisdom. So there were about 4,000 people in this survey 
and they were trying to get an idea of biblical engagement. What they found is, whether they were believers or not, people who read the Bible, either read or listened to the Bible at least four times a week, were 57% less likely to get drunk than people who read the Bible less or didn't read the Bible at all. They were 68% less likely to have sex outside of marriage, either before they were married or after they were married in, in marriage covenant with someone who wasn't their spouse. They were also 61% less likely to view pornography because they engaged the Bible four times a week. Now am I saying, okay, you gotta read the Bible four times a week because if we're not careful, that becomes the law, right? Well, now I gotta read the Bible four times a week and if I don't, but it's not about adding another law. It's about saying, hey, let's develop some habits and patterns in our lives where we are pursuing God. And as we're pursuing God, it marginalizes the sin in our lives. It begins to push it out without us having to try to make it happen. God will do the work in and through us. Romans chapter seven, verse nine says this. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It was uh, used, uh, it used the commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy and it commands are holy and right and good. So what does he say? He says, hey, um, the law is still good. It still has value. The law is good, but it's a terrible God. The law is valuable, it's important, but if that is supreme in my life, if that's what I'm pursuing, I'm in trouble. Verse 13, he says this, but how can this be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. And, and this is essentially what Satan does. Satan will take the good that God has created and he will twist it or pervert it. See, Satan is not a creator. Satan cannot create. Satan is, the name of his game is perversion. He will twist and mutilate and shift everything God does and turn it into something God never, cre never intended it to be. Um, think about, <laughs> this might be a weird place to go. Think about sex for a minute. Sex was given as a gift from God for man and woman in marriage covenant. That's the context it's supposed to be in. If we're in covenant relationship together, the covenant of marriage, that's, that is the context for sexual relation between a man and a woman. But our culture today says, you know, sex is really for anybody. If you care about them, even if you don't care about them, it doesn't matter, it's your body, you do whatever you want. But what studies have shown, what we see over and over and over again, is that promiscuous sex leads to less, less sexual intimacy later in life. That what you're actually after, you miss because you go from partner to partner to partner because the world has said this is what you do. What's happened? Well, Satan shifted, he twisted what was good. Um, it is common in our world, and I want you to hear my heart. If, if you are living with someone who's not your spouse, there's no condemnation. I don't want you to leave here mad or angry, but I want you to know this. That is not God's best for you. Uh, studies show that about 70% of Americans live together before they get married. And the people that live together before they get married have much higher rates of divorce. 
Because people will say things like, well, you gotta, how do you know if we're compatible if we don't live together? But, but what stats show is, this is absent of the Bible and absent of morality. This is just the numbers, that you are much more likely to get divorced if you marry someone that you've lived with before you got married. You know what the studies show? That if you stay celibate before marriage and you don't have sex till after marriage, you're much more likely to stay married long-term. That's not a biblical thing, that's a biblical principle, but that's, that's God's truth, right? So here's the thing, God gives us something, Satan twists it. Think about this, in our world today, a lot is made about identity. I gotta be careful, I'm gonna offend some people here. Our identity. We were given our identity by God. We are sons and daughters of God. Scripture says he created them male and female in his image, okay? So, so here's the thing. Um, we, we've been given our identity. We are the image bearers of God. And, and what Satan has done is he's twisted that. And he said, you know what? Whatever you feel, it, it's all based on how you feel and what you think, and it's all fine. And that's gotten twisted. Uh, this is a for real story. I read this last week. There is a lady who had gotten hired in her workplace. Um, and after she had worked there a while, she, this is not a joke, she came out as a tiger. And she demanded that her coworkers treat her like she's a tiger. She identifies as a tiger. And her bosses didn't know what to do and they weren't sure what to do. And there was a lawsuit that was threatened. So they decided to treat her like a tiger. I don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> are they giving her a slab of meat and like keeping her in a cage? I'm not even sure. I'm, this is the world we live in. Does that mean we don't love people who struggle with these things? No, absolutely. We love them really, really well. But we love them enough to be honest with them that, that we were created in the image of God, that God doesn't mess up. He doesn't make mistakes. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He sent his son to make way for us to be in relationship with him. This is what the enemy does, and he does it with the law too. He's taken the law, which is good, and he's twisted it and made us slaves to it, and that's not what God intended. Let me go on. Paul says this, the trouble's not with the law for the spiritual, for the spiritual and good. The trouble's with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, and I bet you will relate to this. He says, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. Now, this sounds like an excuse for us to go, oh, no, 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 the devil made me do it. No, I'm not a sinner. It's just sin in me that did that. I'm, I'm good. It's a sin that's bad. And that's not really what Paul's getting at. Um, in the book of James, James says this. He said, temptation, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So he's saying the same thing Paul was saying, that, that when we live in the flesh, the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, it leads to death in our lives. But he says this, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Um, I have this mental image when I read this passage, it entices us and drags us away. The devil doesn't entice us. We entice ourselves. I know how I could get stupid better than anybody else does because I know me pretty well. And we are all 
about this far away from just being stupid, if we're gonna be honest, right? And I think about this idea, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would say, don't take candy from strangers and, you know, like the big panel van, stay away from the white van, like bad guys drive white vans, like, you know, this is the image I have. And so when I read this, that, that I'm enticed by my own desires and then dragged away, I have this picture of this guy like standing outside a panel van. He's like, hey buddy, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. He's like, hey, what are you looking for? I've got everything you want in here. Everything you want is right in here. Really? It couldn't be that bad. And I just kind of go over. And as I put my head in the van, he just like clubs me over the head and then throws a bag over me and throws me in the van. And all of a sudden it's like, and just a trail of dust and I'm gone. Like, well, what an idiot that guy was. He should not have gotten in the van with that dude, right? That would just been me being stupid. And let's be honest, we can all be stupid. We don't need Satan's help to be stupid. And some of you are offended because I've said stupid way more than you're comfortable with in this message already. But the reality is, this is what happens in our lives. It's our own sinful desires that drag us away. I'm kind of a science nerd. I love uh, science and astrophysics and things like that are really interesting to me. And there is a a law uh, of inertia. It's Newton's first law. And if you took physics in high school, maybe you've heard uh, a body in motion will stay in motion and a body at rest will stay at rest. That's basically what it is. But it says if a body is at rest or moving at a constant speed in a straight line, it will remain at rest or keep moving in a straight line at a constant speed unless it's acted upon by force. And what this is saying is things that have motion and momentum have force. And this is what I want you to understand. The sin in our lives has momentum because I was a sinner for a long time. I was born a sinner. And that sin gains momentum and force and power in my life. And and I am incapable of stopping that on my own, of just flipping the switch and going, "Eh, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Eh, I'm not gonna think that way anymore. I'm not gonna value people or things that way anymore. I'm just not gonna do it. And some of you understand what we're about to get into, that that Paul is saying this sin has momentum, the sin has force, and I can't stop it on my own. He says, I don't don't know why I do what I do. I don't wanna do it, but I do it anyway. And what he's talking about is this force of sin, this momentum that sin has in our lives to move us to places we don't wanna go. This is what he says in verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me, That is in my sinful nature. I wanna do what's right, but I can't. Some of us relate to that. It's because the power of sin in our lives, this momentum is taking us forward. He said, I wanna do what is good, but I don't. I don't wanna do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't wanna do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And what he's talking about is there's these There are these two people taking residence in us. There's a spirit man and a flesh man, if I can say it that way. They reside in each of us. He goes on to say this. I've discovered this principle of life that when I wanna do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war within my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. This, this word for power here in the Greek, it's namos, and it means law. So what he's saying is there is another law at work within me. It's not just the law of the spirit. Uh, there's another law, and it's the law of the flesh. These two people that reside in me are, are functioning with two different laws. 
and my flesh is a slave to the law of the flesh, and my spirit is a slave to God. And, and these, these spirits are at work, they're, they're at war within each other. In fact, the word he uses there at war, it, it means besieged. So what it basically means is the spirit is besieged by the, by the sinful fleshly nature all around. We are hunkered down and we are fighting, but we are surrounded by sin is basically what he's saying. This is the feeling we get. And then he responds. Verse 24, he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Some of us have gotten to this place before. Maybe you're here right now. Maybe you're in a place where the the momentum of the sin has taken you to a place and you're going, how did I get here? I don't wanna do the things I'm doing, but I keep doing it. I know better, but I I can't do better. And you're struggling. And maybe you've gotten to the point where you go, what a miserable person I am. How can I get out of this? How can I escape this? How can I move past this moment Because how could God love me? He can't love me. Look what I've done. And Paul has this moment where he says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Then he answers. He says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. He said, if I live according to the flesh, I'm gonna keep doing things that lead to death. If I just give in to the momentum of sin in my life, it's gonna lead to death. Remember what we said earlier. An object of motion stays in motion. An object at rest stays at rest unless force is exhibited, unless force is presented. So another force has to come in. And the truth is, if you could stop the momentum of sin in your life by sheer will of force, you would have done it. If you could just make yourself a better husband, you would have done it. If you could just make yourself a better parent, you would have done it. It's hard. And the momentum of sin in our life has carried us so far. Like, I'm powerless. This is where we need another force. And this is the power of God in our lives. This is the power of Jesus in our life. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We say, okay, God, I need you. I surrender to you. I need you to exhibit your force in this situation. And this is what God wants for us. He he wants us to be free from shame, free from the power of of sin in our life because sin has real power. Remember what we said last week, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Where there is force from sin, there is a greater force from the power of God. If we'll trust him. So I'm gonna turn it over to our hosts in Blairsville right now. They're gonna close out the rest of our time together. I love you guys more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. So maybe you're that person today that you, you recognize, Mel, I mean, I've been doing a good job coming to church. I've been trying to do good, being nice and all those things, but you recognize the momentum of sin in your life is stronger than you can handle. 
It's got more force than you can tame. If you could have just stopped some of your behavior or thoughts or habits or addictions, you would have, but you can't. This is where you have to say, I I need another force. I need God to step into the situation. He will. He will. See, some of you right now, you're dealing with shame because you're thinking about the stuff you've done, the stuff that you've done in your past. And I want you to know there is no shame in this place. Shame is not of God, it's not from God. Paul wrote this letter to Christians and he was telling them, you gotta deal with the sin in your life. This stuff is real. This wasn't for unbelievers, it was for believers. And he's saying, let God work in your life. Let God clean you up. And he wasn't bringing condemnation. He was doing it with a heart of love to bring unity to the body, to to help people get to where they needed to be. And I wanna say that with the same heart that, that I don't have any condemnation for you. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you into better behavior. I I want to solve a problem. I've got the solution, it's Jesus. So will you just say yes? Will you just surrender? Will you just stop trying to fix it on your own? Will you just allow him to do the work he wants to do? Because he will if you'll trust him. Yeah, let's pray together. In the name of Jesus, I ask that today, right now, in this place, Heavenly Father, you would crush shame. That shame that people have carried with them, maybe for years because of things they've done, things that have been done to them, things they've been a part of. God, I pray that that shame that they've even drug into this place today would be broken off them and crushed forever. That it would never be gone back to, it would never be picked up again. It would be forgotten and walked away from. It would be abandoned in this place. God, I thank you that you're not a God of shame. It didn't come from you and you don't use it for us. That's a tool of the enemy. So God, I pray that you would break his power to heap shame on your children. I pray right now that you would break the force of sin in our lives. You see people in this place that have the same sentiment that Paul had. I don't wanna do what I'm doing, but I can't stop. I don't know how to live better. I can't do it. God, I pray that you'd have mercy on them. Come alongside them today. Empower them by your Holy Spirit to live a life that is not dominated by sin. I thank you that we're not slaves to sin, we're slaves to God. So Lord, help us see we're no longer indebted to sin, we're indebted to you. So Lord, I pray that we would set aside relationships and friendships and values and perceptions and habits and addictions. I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would walk out of these things. And I pray as we do, God, it's gonna change us. It's gonna change our families. God, you're gonna be glorified. So God, I pray freedom in this place in the name of Jesus. Now with no one looking around with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you would say to me, Mel, today, um, what you described is me. 
That's what I'm dealing with. That's what I'm going through. Maybe you're here and you feel so much condemnation and so much shame that that shame would say, don't you dare raise your hand. Don't you dare go forward for prayer in a minute because you don't want them to know what you're really doing, what you're really going through, what you've really done. But I, I'm pleading with you as your pastor, don't let shame keep you from freedom. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, that's me. I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with the weight of sin and the force of sin. And I can't stop it. I need God's help. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me. If that's you, I'm not gonna embarrass you or shame you. I just wanna pray with you. If you wanna be included in that prayer, put your hand up real high where I can see it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, several hands, four, five, six hands on my right, several hands on my left. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you on my left. Thank you, ma'am. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else? Yeah, thank you. I see you up in the balcony. We're gonna pray together. And I want every person in this place, I want you to pray this prayer out loud, pray this prayer boldly. I want you to pray it from your heart. You're gonna repeat the words I pray, but I want you to pray them from your soul, from your heart to God. So pray this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From now on, I choose to serve you. I'm walking away from the power of sin. And from this moment forward, I'm a son or daughter of God. Have your way with my life and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, scripture says you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is an introduction, you just met Jesus. Um, and we wanna help you get to know him better. We wanna help you know who he is and what he wants for your life. And the simplest thing for you to do would be to let us know by taking the card and the seat back in front of you. Take it to our info center when we finish in a moment and give it to them. Um, they're gonna give you a Bible and they're gonna take some information from you and they're gonna get in contact with you in the next few days. If you'd prefer to do that electronically or if you're watching online, you can simply text Summit PA to the number 94,000. Let us know about your decision. We're gonna respond back to you. We're gonna help you take the next step in your faith journey. And again, we're gonna get in contact with you in the next couple of days to help you begin to grow in your faith and, uh, and allow God to break the power of sin in your life because that's ultimately what this is about. So thank you so much for the decisions you made today. I'm proud of you. Here's what's gonna happen now. Pastor Todd's gonna lead us in one final song. We're gonna sing this last song together. And as we're singing the song, I would encourage you, let's, let's worship God. Let's meditate on what God's spoken to us today. Maybe God has spoken something very specifically to you. Ask God, how would you have me live this out? What would you have me do? What would you have me change? Invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, make the changes in me that you wanna make. And I promise he will. And while we're singing, our prayer team and some of our staff are gonna be here at the front of this room. And we'd be honored to pray with you about whatever your needs may be. So I really wanna encourage you though, um, 
If you've got a need, please don't leave here without, us letting, uh, let, uh, without letting us pray for you. And especially if you're here today and you're dealing with the power of shame in your life, um, if you're struggling with the, the weight and the momentum of sin in your life, let us pray with you before you go. There's no condemnation. There's no shame in the name of Jesus. That's why we're here is to pray with you. So stand to your feet all over the room. We're gonna worship together one more time before we're dismissed. Guys, I tell you often, I hope you know it. I mean it sincerely. I love you more than you know. And I am so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.